Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Welcome to this week's show. With me today are Gretchen Winkler and Bill Snodgrass. Uh, Bill, welcome back to the show. We haven't had John in a while. Hi. Hey. So the reason we have a little different lineup this week is we've got some really sad news. We've lost a member of our team. Our co-host Jeremy passed away on March 19th. It was completely unexpected. We've been running a few clip shows the last few weeks. This is why. At the age of 49, he wasn't very old and was a big part of this. He's been around for the 10 years we've been doing this show, plus a personal friend of all of us for much longer than that. And it was one of these situations that just happened. Uh, from what I understand, it was due to some kind of a heart complication. It was very instant. So he didn't suffer or was sick or anything like that, but he definitely will be missed. We're going to be doing a legacy show in the next couple of weeks, and we'll keep you updated on that as well as with some information on our website. So what is in the news? The biggest EV battery recycling plant in the U.S. is open for business. So this is an issue we've talked about with electric cars and really anything else that takes batteries is that the recycling has been a problem. There isn't a way to recycle to scale. At least there hasn't been. And a lot of this lithium and other chemicals like that are getting thrown into landfills. So while you have a car that uh, may or may not be better on the environment, depending on how you charge it and how the electricity to charge it is made, you have this problem of all this stuff that is getting thrown out. So this is in Covington, Georgia. It's a recycling plant by a recycling startup called the Send Elements. And what they're doing is they're trying to figure out a way to solve this problem. Process is 30,000 metric tons of input each year, breaking down old batteries and prepping the most valuable materials inside to be processed and turned into new batteries. So, I mean, that sounds like a good thing. Yeah. And if it's something that they can make work and actually make some money off of, this might really help with dealing with the problem of recycling batteries. And I know all the way across the board, this is an issue. We've talked about EVs and this type of things, but even the alkaline batteries you use in your house are not easily recyclable. In Portland, there's only one place, Ikea, that I'm aware of that you can even take them to. And the only other way to do it requires paying $25 for a box and then putting the batteries in it and shipping it back to a place to, to do, which we do because I prefer that over throwing them in the landfill. But this is something that is not a new problem. It's just something that's become bigger with these EV batteries and other things that we're using now. So um, we'll see how this works out. And I might get a hold of them and see if they can come on and talk a little bit about what they're doing. And hopefully this will be the start of a solution to this problem. What is the Flipper Zero and why did Amazon ban it? So this is an interesting device. It's a little white thing uh, with some little screen and some other things on it. And what it's specifically designed to do is intercept any digital signal that's out there. Oh, I wonder geez. why they banned it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's so, it's got a good use. It's just also that it can also be used for not so good uses. <laughs> right. Correct. Yes. And I, and I think that's what it kind of comes down to it. The uh, good uses are things like checking Wi-Fi, figuring out where the systems are working, that kind of a thing. But the other thing is, is your Internet of Things sensors. It has an RFID radio, so it can be used to replicate things like the key fob to your car and other stuff. Uh, RFID exists in a lot of different things, passports, credit cards, so you can kind of see where that might go. Uh-huh. 
And, uh, <laughs> but on the other so, hand, this is a great thing for testing if you're building systems revolving around those. <laughs> yeah, this is true. And it is a test device. It's great. The other thing that's interesting use for it, and I do have one of these, is you can scan the chip in your pet, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Oh, that'd be so, neat. You know, oh, yeah. it has, uh, has different things. Now, building one of these, you can't buy them online anymore, but uh, if you get something like a Raspberry Pi, it would be, I think, relatively easy to put it together because all of the radio pickups and sensors and that kind of thing are readily available. You would just have to know how to do it. And uh, But for a device that definitely could be used as a hacking device, this was something that was kind of cool. Um, if people are into hacking, which, of course, I'm not. But uh, this uh, retailed for $119, had everything built in, and you can still find them on eBay and stuff like that. Headlight. Hacking is a thing on cars. That sounds yeah. Speaking of which, so (laughs) what this comes down to is in pretty much all modern cars, there's a diagnostic part port ODB onboard diagnostics is what that stands for. Usually under the steering column or somewhere near to that that you can plug into and get various information. If they smog your car, they use it. If you have a malfunction, need to scan like your check engine lights on, um, you can do it from there. And one of the problems with this is if someone gets into the car with the appropriate device, they can plug into that and bypass your key fob and start the car and drive Not it. Not my right? car. No, you, you, <laughs> you, uh, this is true, but modern cars, modern cars. So, so really 2001 and after is the, is the age on these. And the thing of it is, is the inconvenience, of course, is you would have to break into the car to get to it. And they are starting to make port lock covers that make this much more difficult. But the thing of it is, is getting able being able to get access to any point on your car's computer will essentially allow you to have access in the same way that you would through the port. And as everything's getting smarter, the headlights, for whatever reason, now each have their own computers or digital control modules. So if you rip apart a little bit of the frame around the bumper and get into the wiring behind it, you can bypass the key fob, unlock the doors, get into the car and drive it away without ever seeing a key, and it'll operate just fine. And right now, there isn't really a way to block this. It is a problem that they are looking at doing. And just as a programmer myself, really, the only way I think that they're going to be able to secure this properly is they need to encrypt all of the onboard computers. But doing that is going to be a process. And it also, right to repair and the rest of it is the signals are all encrypted. Unless you have the right computer from the manufacturer that can read it, you wouldn't be able to repair your car. So there's a downside to that, too. But this is an issue if you come out and it looks like there's maybe a little damage to your bumper or uh, somebody's been messing with that part of the car. It may be someone that's trying to get into your system and doing it through that point of entry. Mind reading AI. Japan study sparks an ethical debate. Yeah, mind reading AI. What could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't already? Yeah, yeah really. You know, it just... Uh, this type of technology is interesting, and yeah, an ethical debate, I guess that there would be, is this is an AI that can pick up certain things from brain waves. Uh, they've been testing it using MRIs and other things to get images, and then translate what it's detecting into a readable format into the computer. The system is able to generate high-fidelity images, and they actually are very, very close to what the person was thinking. So... You know, in the test study in the white paper, the people doing it are saying that they didn't expect the result. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to see where this is going. But when you talk about some of the scary processes that we could go down, 
with some of these things. This is one of them where all of a sudden, potentially, we could eventually have a computer that could read your brain. I've seen all kinds of things about that in science fiction, let me tell you, Star Trek, Star Wars, and all the rest. The other side of it, though, is something like this for somebody that maybe has developmental difficulties or has been in an accident or something of that nature. It could open up some avenues for being able to restore communication and quality of life. So there is a positive side to it, too. And what they're talking about here was the ethics is how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? Because more and more as we head down that road of singularity, we have to consider a lot of different issues that are really kind of new and seem to be coming up pretty quickly as the technology advances rapidly. World's smallest working Lego V8 sounds like the real thing. And Jeremy would have loved this. Jeremy would have loved this. This is actually pretty cool. It is a little V8 engine that's built out of Legos, and I believe it has more power than the one in my car. So, um, <laughs> well, I mean, they built an so, entire car out of Legos recently, but <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I'd have a better time with that too. Um, the little motor can rev as high as 4350, 4350 RPM, and the Legos actually do stay intact at those speeds, at least in the video of it. So, I don't know. It's kind of cool. I, I have to say something like this is certainly for STEM education and that type of a thing would be kind of fun to put together. In fact, I might actually see if I can get the parts and do this and just see what it's about. The FBI warns against using public USB charging ports. Yeah, this is not new. It's just coming up again. So what this is talking about is where you go somewhere like an airport or whatever and there's a USB charging port for you to plug your phone into. And if it's really just an electrical port, that's great, and it's convenient. The problem is it is a USB port, and they are putting things like skimmers, the bad guys in this, where you plug in your phone and it charges it, but at the same time it downloads all the information in your phone and sends it somewhere. And they call this juice hacking. It's a cyber theft tactic that's been out there for a while, but it is definitely prevalent again. The way that you work around this is bring your charger, plug it into a regular electrical outlet, there's plenty of them, and then charge off of your charger. That'll get you around the possibility of being hacked. All right, we got a great show coming up for you this week. We will be back after the break. We've got two great guests talking about two different things, both in the world of AI. Don't go away. Have you seen him? He's from the future. He's got a really big computer. And he uses it, uses it. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Joining us now, guest Joshua Penner, who has a very interesting AI product. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So tell us about a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. Uh, we are building a product for, uh, we call them agencies, but uh, it's really the 90,000 local governments across the U.S. And so the way we phrase it is uh, little g government. And the idea is uh, we identify really one of the big pain points and we utilize exert, uh, emerging technology to answer that. So what kind of problems does this solve? Because I know when you talk about the way government works, there's a lot of them to pick out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, one of the chat, well, there's, look, there's, there's a number of different challenges uh, for local government. Uh, first is uh, the, um, you know, the, 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 budgets of local government by and large across the, the country 
don't raise as fast as the costs do. Um, and so you constantly have this squeeze of staff wearing multiple hats and having to do multiple things. But the the challenges that we're really honing in on are the abilities to utilize new technology to help out very critical aspects of government. Um, in particular, the project that we're developing is a public records tool. Um, and public records are the biggest problem no one knows about. But just for example's sake, every year there's $500 million in public records lawsuits across the US. Um, and the costs of those lawsuits are borne by all of us. Um, so we all live in an agency. We all live in either a city or a county, school district, a fire district, utility district, some sort of agency. And they're all beholden to public records laws, which is good. But producing public records for those laws is a very big challenge. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, that's know one thing that. you bring up that's very interesting is we all do live in multiple jurisdictions. So it seems like with that, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're going to have different agencies doing things in different ways that may not all be compatible across the board. Would a solution like this be able to get that to talk to each other and be able to kind of solve some of those type of problems? You know, it's possible. So um, you may already know from my background, but those listening might not. I'm, I'm the mayor of the city of Ording, Washington. I'm also part of the Association of Washington Cities Board of Directors. And so a lot of, uh, very often in, uh, say, in most communities, we engage in something we call an interlocal agreement. And really, this is a way to spread out the costs of things that are very challenging for smaller communities to afford. So if you want to think about um, something like a co-responder model for police, so that way sending out mental health counselors or something with police officers, the ability to afford staff like that is very challenging for individual jurisdictions um, that, uh, you know, say, have 10,000 constituents. And so they'll enter into an interlocal agreement with neighboring jurisdictions and pool their resources. Um, so there is potentially an opportunity to work in interlocals here and um, get some economies of scale. Uh, the way we're building our product, though, is is to be make it affordable for all jurisdictions. And um, some of the some of the ways that we are designing our product, I think, will make it uh, make it that way. No, that sounds that sounds like it really does solve a problem. No. Public record requests, like you were saying at the beginning of the interview, are, are a big deal. There's laws and rules and stuff. Is there penalties for noncompliance? Do you run into this? And would a tool like this help to solve those kind of problems? Um, well, so every state's going to have their penalties for noncompliance. I can speak deeply about the penalties in, say, Washington State. If you run into a noncompliant situation, it can be $100 per document um, per day. And so the lawsuit wow. fees add up very fast. There was a Somebody we talked to just recently was part of a $100,000 lawsuit um, over a disagreement on whether or not something was a public record, and the courts ultimately weighed for them. There's a famous case here in, in our state um, versus the city of Tacoma, where there was an alleged uh, public records request. The city didn't know where it was, but when they were served the lawsuit, that started a new public records request in the, in the service. And they didn't respond to it. Ultimately, the, the courts found the city was liable for a couple million dollars. And so these requests can be very sublime in nature. They can take the form of, say, you go to a, a meeting and you say, I'd really like to know um, what, what notes were taken at such and such meeting. That constitutes a public records request by most interpretations. And so there needs to be a way to capture those even incidental public records requests understand what they are and produce them in a timely manner. So it's a very challenging um, topic, but you know, utilizing uh, some of the emerging uh, contextual AI tools, uh, generative, meaning it, it can produce 
thought to some degree and, and classification AIs, we think we've got a, a good bead on a solution. So this situation could really hurt a small town government. Uh, you know, wow. Yeah, for sure. There are, there's, um, there are examples all across the country of small town governments that um, you, you, I, I don't want to say you get a nefarious actor, but somebody who's made it their mission, I should say, to utilize public records to um, maybe make a point. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there is no solution for those communities. They have to produce those records and, you know, then they, they run into a situation where they're weighing one opportunity versus another. Do I hire two clerks versus, uh, an additional police officer, for instance. Right. Yeah. Putting your money where, where you need it. And it seems like from what you're saying that the current way of doing this is a very manual process. It sounds like there's a lot of labor intensive manually searching and all the rest of that. Is that accurate or do they even use computers at this point uh, in any capacity? Well, they do. Um, so there is, there definitely is a manual aspect to it. Um, one of the, one of the things we, we see is that, uh, communities across the country are working to digitize records. And so that means that to some degree, there are some records that are in paper in a file somewhere and they need to be found. Um, so that's part of what we what we need to do when we work with the community is help them to digitize their records, but that really is the the beginning of it. Um, the the other part that you talk to, uh, the manual stuff, to some degree, that's a that's a benefit of experience. Is that um, often you have clerk that's twenty or thirty years at the city or county or district, and they just know where the files are. But what happens to that knowledge when they retire? Right now. The average baby boomer just turned 65, and we're seeing the silver tsunami, as they say it, in public service. And so where is all that knowledge going when they leave? Um, it cannot be transferred to somebody overnight. So um, creating a new system that is better for identifying records or pre-identifying records and also understanding the nature of the request when it's made um, is the solution that we believe. So have you launched, and if not, when do you plan to, and how does somebody find out about you online? Well, you can find out about us at inquisio.ai. So it's I-N-Q-U-I-S-I-O.ai. Um, we are working towards uh, an iterative release of different aspects of the public records uh, model. And so our intent one day is that you go to a website, you type in your question, natural language, you get a little bit of back and forth with our system. And then you know that system connects with the clerk and produces the document in as early as the same day. Um, we anticipate that that will be ready in about two years, possibly faster, but there are iterative steps that we could take earlier on working with clerks and, and other, other staff at the city to get their records in such a way where they can be quickly assessed. And so our first product will be out in three to six months, and that will be something that will assist clerks in, in getting those documents into their systems um, and also train our models up to be able to identify those documents. Well, listen, thank you so much for the information, and we're going to get a lot of listener questions on this, so hopefully we can have you back on maybe in a couple of months to answer those. And we're going to put out your links on our social media, so check it out there. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Oh, 
Check out our new website, userfriendlyshow.com. That is your one stop for getting our social media, asking questions. And one question you asked was, how do you ask questions? Well, we fixed that. There was a way to do it. It just required standing on your head. It's now a little bit easier. When you go to the homepage, there's a new button that says, ask a question. Just click on that and that'll take you to the form and you fill it out from there. And that's how we get your information. Tech Wednesday this week, we talked about reviews. Online reviews are a big deal. Most of us use them. In fact, some of the numbers that are producing on this are absolutely staggering. 92% of consumers hesitate to purchase from businesses with no reviews. So if you're not listed on Yelp or Google in any capacity, that actually is a huge sign of it. 87% of consumers use reviews to search for local services and 67% are influenced by online reviews. In fact, I think that might be a little bit higher. So Bill and Gretchen, why do you do you prefer Yelp or Google? Do you use something else? How do you get your online reviews or do you? I don't really, actually. Um, I've actually made reviews on Google, you know, places that we've gone that I thought um, were really, really good. Uh, I kind of stay away from tearing somebody apart. So um that kind of that old saying of if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all so um i tend to just you know like on google if i do a review it's only the positive ones okay and that makes sense so bill if you had to make a choice um yelp or google i've used both i tend to find that google is a little bit more uh, non, uh, what would be the word? It doesn't discriminate, you know. I mean, it, you get the good, you get the bad. Um, Yelp, I've come across where you can tell that maybe the company has been weeding out the bad ones, but I've also seen some that have just been, you know, you, you have to almost take them with a pinch of salt on some situations, like really read it. Like, I remember one was like, Oh, I'm giving them a terrible review because they didn't have salt packets that day or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, I've seen stuff like that. That's 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 really weird. So you both seem to lean towards Google, and I'll tell you what, you agree with the rest of the world. So here are the numbers. This is actually from 2020, but it's the latest statistics I could find on this. Yelp, which used to be, so you see where I'm going with this, the one stop for reviews, is still relevant. They have 200 million unique visitors per month, so that's a lot. However, Google has four billion per day. <laughs> wow! So, a couple of things seem to be going on here. And uh, Bill, what you were talking about, there's a movie called Billion Dollar Bully, and this talks about this. The Better Business Bureau has also weighed into it that Yelp seems to have at least a reputation that if you get reviews, they won't allow businesses to take them down, and that part seems to be true. But if you pay to advertise on Yelp, the good reviews seem to be at the top of the list. If you don't or don't, quote, comply with their policies, whatever that may mean, then all of a sudden the bad reviews tend to surface up and it's harder to get to the good ones. So, you know, again, that's an accusation. It's certainly something that's been taken a little bit seriously because they're investigating it. Google, on the other hand, as Bill, as you say, seems to be just straight out there as uh, here's what it is and, you know, like it or leave it. The other thing I think that also drives Google is as much as I am not a huge fan of Android Auto, I do use Google Maps. And the way they have the reviews set up is when you're looking for a place, the reviews are available with the map. So you're already in a system where you're looking for the location, finding the phone number, finding the website, whatever the case may be. 
and the reviews are right there. So it seems like that actually definitely makes sense that uh, more people would use them. But both can certainly play into it, Google being the biggest part of this and uh, the kind of first place that you would want to look at. Making sure your online reviews are accurate and trying to deal with that is a big thing for businesses. I know it can be a huge pain because if you get people out there that post things, whether or not they're accurate, it's going to show up on your profile, you know, and, and uh, you may not be able to remove it. I, as a, for example, had one client have a client that is a, a psychologist and their firm had a thing on Google Maps and they had a, uh, I guess it was a patient that posted negative stuff because they didn't like the way their session went. And because of privacy requirements, they couldn't really do anything about it. So sometimes these things can cause a problem. But the other side of it is, and this is a big thing, is if you get a negative review, don't go and reply to it. The business owners can reply to it, but don't go and reply to it and say something super negative or something that's going to make you look really bad. A lot of places do that. And it's just not something that uh, that comes off too well, whether it's fair or not. It's always best to you know just get out there and be as kind as you can. This is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Have you seen him? He's from the Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Coming back this week is Joseph M. Leonard. He's an author that was on a little while back. And we had talked about a number of different things dealing with his books and technology at that standpoint. But another thing that's been in the news is ChatGPT. So uh, first of all, Joseph, welcome back to User-Friendly. Well, thank you for having me. And first, I got a joke. When does user-friendly 3.0 come out? I want some upgrades. <laughs> uh, oh, there you are. There you are. You know, we'll have to talk to the staff about that one. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Hey, you know, we're doing a television show coming up, so maybe that'll be 3.0. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, so anyway, Chat GPT, what is your take on that? Well, I had such high hopes for it, and as usual, I lined up disappointed. <laughs> you know, my high hopes were in knowing that Elon Musk was part of the initial, uh, you know, team that uh, the the financial team and leadership team that put it together. And then I got suspicious when I saw Elon cut and run, and I figured, well. He probably had good reason, and and now as more stories come out about it, you, you see why he did. Because what had such great hope has now got like a double bias, and what I mean by that is it builds upon Google to start with. Well, everybody under I I love Google for shopping. <laughs> I I love Google for you know, uh, looking up old friends or whatever. But if I want to do something serious, I use DuckDuckGo or Jibberoo or whatever because Google delivers filtered, biased results. So building upon Google, right there, you meet, you're, you're creating a bias of your system rather than using 
Google, DuckDuckGo, Bing, you know, several engines to help feed that AI system. And then there's another bias on top of that because it's clear, according to Eline, that Greg Brockman, who is was became the CEO, is basically just being a mouthpiece and arm a third arm for Bill Gates and whatever Bill Gates wants. So there's then that clear bias and everybody showing it that you can see some people are doing live on air tests. I'll put in this and look, I get this glowing thing. I put in that person who's the opposite side of the spectrum and it plays dumb or it spews a bunch of unsubstantiated garbage. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Nothing unbiased about that, right? So, yeah. Well, you know, like with DuckDuckGo and Jibberu, they seem fair and balanced, to use the term, right? That you get the far left Mother Jones and uh, Politico and Huffington Post but you'll get middle of the road supposed nonpartisan groups, which a lot of them are farcical too. They're they're right. either left or right, pretending to be moderate, uh, you know, to to hide their bias. And then you get right wing too. I, I used to write for red state, you know, but you'll get like a red state or whatever. Or you might even see an article of mine from uh, where I put them on before it's news nowadays at right. Jay Leonard Detroit. Uh, but, you know, it should be presented in a way that the people then get uh, the option to choose what they want to see. If they want confirmation bias, they can choose it. They shouldn't have somebody's bias imposed upon them. Right, right. You know, and I think an interesting thing I just want to interject here is because I think a lot of people don't know that there are other search engines. You know, you hear about Google, Yahoo was big. It's kind of not so much anymore. Bing is Microsoft's. But DuckDuckGo and some of these other ones are very viable. They work fine. It's just they're not in the mainstream, you know, but yeah. they, they're out there. And it's a good way to be able to get a different perspective on things and get different results. And I find when I search on stuff, if I use a couple of different search engines, I get way different things. It makes it more, you, you get more information to be able to put something together, you know? <laughs> it's like I was joking about Riverside only works on Chrome. Well, I mm -hmm. use five different browsers for five different reasons. My social media is all on this and th that's on that. And the other browser, I use Firefox, Edge, Chrome, uh, Opera, and Brave, all for different mm -hmm. things. Because yeah, each it, of them does something better than the other for a reason. Same reason why you should use Google and DuckDuckGo and Bing and Yahoo and Jibberu to see what the others are withholding from you. And I'm certainly biased to DuckDuckGo because you can actually find the articles I've been writing for decades on DuckDuckGo, whereas Google seems to suppress all my results. You can find my book on Google, but that's mainly because it's on Amazon. So right, so it's marketing know, and coming in that way. They're not going to block yeah. Amazon, but little old me, yeah, I've been shadow banned on Google for decades. <laughs> I know, put that as a challenge out to our listeners. Go do some searches and check out some of the different search engines, and 
DuckDuckGo is safe. There isn't any problem like that. So you're able to uh, get on there and get basically the same kind of searching that you would do on the others and see what you get. And I think you'll be surprised to see how different the information you get back actually is. And I know this has been the case for a long time, but it is definitely uh, definitely interesting to be able to see it for yourself and go from there. So what do you think is the future of AI? Do you think this is going to build out biased results or not? Into something that'll be usable, or <laughs> yeah, unless if we get some honest brokers involved, and hopefully Elon might be one of them. From what we're seeing with Twitter, Twitter, he seems to be an honest broker, and he wants all sides to indeed be heard, be able to be heard uh, without a bias pushed. Uh, I hope it dies. <laughs> I hope okay. it I... dies a painful death unless we get some honest brokers involved with it because it will be nothing but the crap hole Twitter was before Elon got it. <laughs> and here you there, here you there. All right, well, we'll leave it at that. Joseph and Limmer will have your information on our social media and we'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Some great interviews this week. I think uh, it's always interesting to find the different perspectives. And, you know, our guests are great. And I like uh, being able to hear some of the unique things that's that are definitely going on. That last segment, I think he's a great presenter. I'm not sure if I agree with all of his opinions. But, again, you know, it's an interesting perspective to see that and have that out there. Well, this segment has always been, at least since the onset of COVID, where Gretchen, you, Jeremy, and me usually talk about something that we've seen in media and something like yeah. that. We can't do that. We don't have Jeremy anymore. But in line with all of this, um, we did, I finally had a chance to see the Star Wars show Andor. Yeah. And Bill, I don't know if you've seen Andor or not. I hadn't. But it definitely was, okay, so this is how I'm going to, I'm going to give my opinion of it. I liked it. Felt like a drama with Star Wars elements put in there, I think would yeah. be the way that I would describe it. Uh, very few aliens and the way the sets were done and stuff were Star Wars-esque, uh, some more than others. But it was definitely, it was very much darker, but it was well done and I liked it. And you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to figure out how it was going to come out either. It took actually watching it. I like that. Now, Gretchen, you've seen it. What you saw that before? What's your feeling of it? Do you agree with yeah, me? Yeah, it's and pretty. You, much, you don't have to. <laughs> no, it's pretty much the same as what you said. Um, it, it it did lack the aliens uh, like you normally would have, but it was more like a spy thriller, you know, set in the Star Wars universe. And I've always felt that other things could be done in the Star Wars universe. I've always wanted to ha see someone do like a foot a film noir hard-boiled detective like in Coruscant. That would be cool. And But I think the writing was really good. The acting was really good. I think they did a good job on it. It was a well-done show. Yeah. No, I, I think it's worth watching. It's just, it's intense. Just be prepared for that. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. um, and and we sort of binge-watch binge it over the space of a week. 
So there was a lot going on there. This is a prequel to Rogue One. It's where the story sits in the Star Wars universe. Oh, and okay. yeah, it's it's the time before, and it's it's how the character develops and all that, and that's what they what they were doing. But boy, I mean, you know, you walk away from that going, what is going to happen next? <laughs> <laughs> so as far as family, I don't know. There wasn't anything too raunchy or anything in it i i you know certainly your teenage kids i think a younger might not understand that i think that's more the concern i would have than really any content yeah um it has some violent components definitely but then so does star wars so you you know expect that but um but no it was interesting definitely recommend it it's on disney plus and let us know what you think about it until next week this is user-friendly 2.0 keeping you safe on the cutting edge User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.